Next, this month's special series, Focus on Cancer. Throughout the month of April, ReachMD talks to experts in the field about new research channels and treatment options in cancer care. Is oncofertility an answer? You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to this special segment, Focus on Cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and with me today is Dr. Laurie Zoloff. Dr. Zoloff is the director of the Center of Ethics, Science, and Society, as well as the professor of medical humanities and bioethics at the Feinberg School of Medicine, Northwestern University, Chicago, Illinois. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. To begin with, what is oncofertility, a term that's been coined by Dr. Terry Woodruff? Oncofertility represents a new discipline, the combined discipline of concern for patients who are confronting a particular sort of problem, a particular sort of challenges, which is an oncological challenge. They've been told they have cancer and that treating the cancer will, in fact, destroy or severely limit, or at least potentially so, their fertility. And what to do about it, what to, what, how to confront it. So it's the study of how to treat and how to address oncology patients with particular reference to their fertility issues, not their cancer. Well, what is the Oncofertility Consortium, and why has this particular subject been selected as one of the nine NIH Roadmap Initiatives? The NIH Roadmap Initiatives were problems, all of them, were problems that could yield to the concentrated attentions of a large group of researchers, they were supposed to look at unsoluble problems, unknowable problems. And could we, if we looked at these unsoluble problems, really think through creative new answers to them? So one such problem, and it's a big one, is that when men confront cancer and their fertility is threatened by the treatments, chemotherapies, radiation therapies themselves, they can store sperm. When men go off to war, they can store sperm. When men confront anything that might limit their life choices for making a family, sperm can be stored and frozen. It's a long-established technique within Western medicine. But women can't because eggs cannot be successfully frozen and then reliably thawed with any certainty. The question was, why is that, and how could that be addressed? And could you learn enough about how follicles self-organize to produce eggs and to learn about the techniques for freezing follicles themselves and then later thawing the follicles and allowing them to proceed along their normal path. That's a tricky problem because it involves a lot that science doesn't understand. It's a tricky ethical problem because it asks significant questions about the anthropology and the theology and the ethics of human reproduction. And therefore, it was an insoluble sort of problem. That's why this was chosen to be one of the things that Americans turn their attention to, American scientists turn their attention to as a roadmap. And the Oncofertility Consortium states that there are probably more centers other than Northwestern working on this. There's a national coalition of centers, and it's open for more physicians to join should they become interested in becoming part of the research project. It's called the National Physicians Cooperative, and centers are interested, the present academic centers who lead this grant are interested in involving and teaching and training new physicians to join the grant and to learn about how they can then offer their patients, not the promise of a family after cancer, but a promise to be involved in very serious research about how that might go. One can't help but think that the success we are experiencing in treating cancer, turning it into many cases a chronic disease, might also be leading us in this direction, especially when we're dealing with young patients. Is this also had something to do with this? So that's an exact description of why this becomes such a compelling problem now. Cancer, especially childhood cancer, really used to be a death sentence. It was an enormous challenge for families to face. And just getting through it was a significant accomplishment. 
But cancer has yielded in part to a successful scientific approach, childhood cancers in particular, and children are surviving cancer. They're rebounding after cancer. Young adults come back into a life that they thought they would never have a chance to have. They still have cancer in that sense, but it's a chronic disease that often can be managed by surveillance rather than acute crisis. As that's understood, then they begin to wonder how to pick up the pieces of their lives that were shattered by a cancer diagnosis. And for some patients, it's something that happened to them in their childhood, and then they come to adulthood, want to resume a life, a family life, a, a life that's full of sexual activity and fecundity and reproduction, but how? So that's one success story leading to complications. The success is that cancer can be treated, but to do so imperils fertility. So you've created, in some sense, an iatrogenic condition that's brand new. The other thing that's been successful is in vitro fertilization and artificial reproductive technology has become quite common for women whose fertility has been lost or prematurely closed due to other factors like medical school and becoming a neurosurgeon or prolonged waiting until you decide it's time to have a family. Many women have now come to fertility clinics in their late 30s, early 40s even, and said, can I have a child now and find it difficult to reproduce given the normal course of things. That's pushed artificial reproductive technology far ahead on a parallel track. Oncofertility says these tracks can meet and the patients facing the same sort of futures actually have something in common, which is the need to rethink what we mean by normal human fertility and its limits. I think Louise Brown in 1978, which I certainly remember, changed all our thinking about IVF and that there was hope for people that we had previously thought really had little opportunity to have a complete family and have their own children. It also happened that, in fact, Louise Brown, again, with our sense of genetics as being more and more important, people now wonder about the degree of human freedom, the degree of human certainty that exists in all of our lives, and that's pushed the anxiety around having one's own genetic children much to the fore. Now, we may agree or disagree with that anxiety. We may agree or disagree with the yearnings that our patients, your patients face. As an ethicist, I have much to say about that cultural yearning, but in fact, it's real for patients, and patients do come over and over again to physicians saying, I want my own child. And by that, they, they mean now their own biological child, their own genetically matched child. And that's created a new kind of yearning and a new kind of demand that, in fact, increasingly can be met by artificial reproduction. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. And today we're focusing on a special part of cancer and its iatrogenic effects causing infertility. And we're talking to Dr. Lori Zoloff, who is Professor of Medical Humanities and Bioethics at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. Well, you bring up an interesting point there because do we have actually a right to reproduce? Is this a real immoral imperative? Or is it really, say, a negative right? We have a negative right, and by that we mean, surely, that when one wants to have a child, we don't want the state or external forces that aren't our own interfering with us and prohibiting us. We certainly wouldn't want that. There's a long history of why families need to make these decisions personally and within their own faith communities, with their own families, without the state intervening and prohibiting fecundity. However, does the state then have a positive duty to assist or support 
having families. Now, in some ways, we do. We say that. We say we want a state that allows children to be raised in healthy environments, in free environments. We want to protect the children we have, and we want to make sure that young women and men who are thinking about reproduction live in environments that don't harm them so that we have a pronatalist theory behind how a state protects its citizens. Do we have to pay to enable it? That's unclear. Do people have a right for their own biological children? I think that's harder to guarantee. What we can say is states exist to allow, in part, people who want to choose to have children to develop and raise healthy families in a safe environment. Now, that's a large umbrella for all of this to be considered. We do have a right, I think, as medical professionals to take care of the harm and heal the harm that our interventions cause. If there is something that happens as a concomitant of surgery or other or, or, or sort of medication, side effects of medication, medicine in general feels that it has a duty to those particular patients to try to remedy the harm caused by the intervention itself. So I think locating any rights talk in uncle fertility around that duty might be the appropriate duty. That's why we're saying that one might pursue uncle fertility differently from just generally doing this for all women across the board. It arises out of the duty that's created when a physician intervenes in a patient's illness and attempts to fix it, but causes side effects. So it's a reparative justice. I see what you mean. We don't hesitate to treat the side effects that affect the liver, the heart, from our chemotherapy or our radiation. And I use the word, actually, iatrogenic, and this is possibly another iatrogenic effect of our treatment. How do you deal with, here you're talking to a family, often parents, that have just found out that the patient, often a child, has a life-threatening disease and they have an immediate problem to solve, what type of treatment to turn to. And at the same time, you step away and give them a whole other difficult question to solve or deal with. What about your child who we hope will survive? Should we take certain steps now that may guarantee her a life of having a family? You've really described exactly the tragedy of the situation that does confront families with children who are facing any life-threatening illness, cancer in particular, what you have is an 8-year-old or 9-year-old or 15-year-old who doesn't think of themselves and is certainly not thought of in their family as an erotic, heterosexual being. Suddenly they have to confront those realities about a potential child who exists in the future and the reality that that future may never come. Families are asked to do extraordinarily difficult things when they confront cancer. This is adding a hard choice to, but there's many hard choices that family faces. We can't prevent them from facing or protect them from facing such a choice. Not offering it in the name of protecting families from an ethical dilemma, I think, is overt paternalism. If this is a possibility, and if you, for young, young girls, just like it is for young boys, I think the potential therapies and interventions should be offered the full range of them, even though it's really difficult to talk about. That's what physicians have to do. Teach parents that they too can face hard decisions, that they have the courage and the capacity by our own ability and our own courage to face these difficult choices. Now, when a child has cancer, a lot has gone terribly wrong. But one thing may still be very right, which is a young girl's follicles are given at birth, and if those follicles can be retrieved and saved and they aren't affected by the carcinogenic conditions, they could be sequestered and saved, and potentially, years later, when the technology is proven, if the technology is proven, and if the the girl grows into a woman who wants to use this technology, that will be there. It's providing a remote but certainly possible option. Now, why do we think this can be faced by families and is a good direction? Is because before this began, 
we asked these mothers and their young daughters now grown into adulthood that very question. If it was you back in your childhood, and we were able to offer this to you then, what would you have felt about it? How would you have struggled? Would you have liked us to withhold the information because it was too hard? And in mother-daughter pair after mother-daughter pair, the data is consistent. People who have survived cancer and have had their fertility destroyed or diminished would want to have had the choice to do this before. And every time we interview a new cancer survivor and add her to the, the survey, we get a very clear and consistent response. And it's in my personal experience, I've literally never interviewed a young woman who who said, oh, I wouldn't have wanted to know, it would have been too upsetting for me. So that, I think, gives us some data about from the women themselves, at least how they think about it in retrospect, which is surely how we make decisions around, say, burn victims or others who might feel one way at point of contact and then, looking back, understand that it was a good intervention, even though it was a tough intervention to go forward with therapy. It sounds so important to enter into this conversation with your patient before they start treatment. Are gynecologists being trained to do this? And really, since our audience includes many specialists, should an internist and a pediatrician also be aware and that this whole discussion and discourse take place? And there are so many aspects of it, discussing it with a minor, the difference between consent and assent. How should we do this? Should there really be a process of education for all of us? The National Physicians Cooperative in this grant has in it a strong educational component, including on the ethical issues and the religious studies issues involved with this question, because, of course, different religions face this problem in very different ways and are just learning about it, just like physicians are just learning about it. But it is imperative, I believe, for patients who will learn about it on the web, <laughs> clearly, right. as soon as they, they ask that question, as soon as they stumble on this website, which they will, when they come into your office, you need to be able to offer this to them. And for people who don't have access to that sort of web search, the physician herself or himself needs to know right now that this is one of the nine projects, the roadmap grants that NIH is quite serious about. It's with that gravitas that they should approach this research, knowing, in fact, that it's only research. It's only research. It's at an early stage. It works in mice. Will it work in humans? Still unknown. But at least offering the chance to patients to participate, the chance to go along this road, along with the researchers, surely should be a part of every single conversation held with every single woman and family when they face the cancer diagnosis. Today we've been discussing this whole area of oncofertility with Dr. Laurie Zoloth. I'd really like to thank you very much for joining us and introducing the subject to many of us. It certainly may change the life in the future of many of our patients, many of them young, who suffer from cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to a special segment on Focus on Cancer on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Cancer. For a program guide, complete list of shows, and podcasts, please visit us at ReachMD.com.